0: Hello. Welcome back to another episode of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJCN in Press. So we are back today. Uh, We have our esteemed guest, Dr. Mark Levine from the NIH, with their newly published manuscript, Uh, Abnormal Urinary Loss of Vitamin C in Diabetes, prevalence, and clinical characteristics of a vitamin C renal leak. So there's a lot to unpack there, and I think it'll be an awesome episode today. Uh, Mark, do you want to introduce yourself real quick?
1: Oh, thank you, Kevin. I'm Mark Levine. I'm a physician scientist. I've been at NIH, uh, actually, embarrassingly for a long time. <laughs> I, I uh, It's been a real privilege to be in the intramural research program and uh That's where I've been uh, for many years. Uh, I I am a physician, and I still see patients, including some of these that were in this study, but I'm also a, a basic scientist. My formal titles, if you'd like to hear them, is that I'm senior investigator, I'm chief of the molecular and clinical nutrition section, and I'm a physician on senior staff in National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Diseases.
0: Awesome. Well, we are fortunate to have you uh, on the podcast today and fortunate to have some of your new work published in the journal. So a lot of this work, you know, there's there's urinary losses, vitamin C, diabetes, a lot of places we could dive into here. But I guess to to start us off first, what really was the rationale for looking at uh, the sort of pharmacokinetics of vitamin C handling and diabetes?
1: so the the simple rationale is that people with diabetes have lower vitamin c concentrations than people without diabetes that's been reported in the literature for many many years um, of uncertain significance Um, i I can unpack that a lot more though and maybe i'll do that because there was a a very um, rigorous uh, rationale for uh, this study that may not appear in the article, but I think it's worth, it's it's worth, it's it's worth talking about. So I, I'm i going to go back in time a long time ago um, when I was a first year medical student, and actually was at the first day of medical school. I was an idealistic medical student thinking that I was going to medical school to prevent disease. The dean came to talk to us and he told us how we had picked a wonderful profession. He even said we had picked the best place in the world to do the profession, but rather, I guess it was the place. And he then proceeded to tell us about a person who had a gallstone. And he said none of us knew what that was. It was the first day of medical school. Uh, but he said some of us would become surgeons over the next uh, um eight to 10 years, both of medical school and training and practice. And we would see this person would make the diagnosis. would take out the gallstone and that there was no feeling in the world like curing the patient of removing the gallstone. Now I have, you know, I, I have, we, we all need surgeons. It's not that I have anything against surgeons. We, we need them. But I went to medical school to prevent the gallstone, not to take it out for me. To be honest, I saw this as I was being a technician, and I didn't want to be a technician. I wanted to prevent that gallstone. I was was quite dismayed until biochemistry came along. Biochemistry was taught by a master who emphasized for us. I mean, it was just beautiful for me about uh, kinetics. It's the relationship of how a substrate causes something to happen, and I thought that's the way forward about thinking about preventing that gallstone but to to take that in more detail and i was a student at the time it it seemed almost an impossibility to do this for the for the substrates that would be involved in a gallstone mainly fatty acids and perhaps glucose and minerals too many reactions too many kinetics but the the magic came for me when we learned about vitamins, which was which participate in limited reactions with clear kinetics consequences. And I went, aha, that's that's, if you will, a rosetta stone of going forward, was thinking about how vitamin recommendations were based. Surely they must be based on kinetics, right? That's what I thought as a medical student. And you know, this was back way before the internet, it meant that I had to to search in the library for for actually many many weeks, I finally found the basis of vitamin recommendations, and I was shocked. They were based on preventing deficiency with a margin of safety, and for me that that's been my path is let's base these recommendations on concentration function relationships, and in particular, let's do just pick a pick a vitamin. And a vitamin is the simplest way to do these kinds of studies and to do what what I call, and I think it's pretty obvious, physiology and pharmacokinetic studies in humans. Learn as much as possible about what happens in healthy humans using the physiology pharmacokinetics techniques that that really can point the way. And once those occur pathophysiology falls out and so I did not start I did not choose vitamin C at the very beginning that was an accident of I, I realized I had to learn to do science and it was part of that process that I picked a vitamin arbitrarily the physiology and pharmacokinetic studies were done in healthy humans they they are uh, the data from those studies Um, are used here in this manuscript, but but we did those many years ago. I'll I'll circle back to why, you know, you could ask, why was there such a delay if these studies were done a while ago? And I'll tell you why in a minute. So to answer, to, to come back to diabetes, you know, why diabetes? So one reason is simply because vitamin C concentrations are lower in diabetes can the physiology that we have learned about vitamin C tell us why? And that physiology fell out of the pharmacokinetics and physiology studies we did in healthy humans. That physiology shows that there are multiple ways that humans really control vitamin C very tightly. It's kind of like glucose, glucose has insulin, Vitamin C has multiple control mechanisms. They are how much you eat, but how much is absorbed, where it goes, so how it's transported, how it gets used, and how the kidney handles it as a water-soluble substance. That part of the control mechanisms, how the kidney handles vitamin C, is described in in this paper. And we use the, the information that we had from healthy subjects who participated in these physiology pharmacokinetic studies. Um, I, I have to say a couple of things here. So these analyses may, you know, to a listener, it sounds okay, sounds pretty simple. These were very complicated analyses. Um, the people, the co-authors on the study, especially Ifeia Benoa and Pierre Christian-Violet, were, were really played a key role in taking apart these analyses. They were not... They may seem straightforward. They weren't. Um, What we learned in healthy people is the kidney plays a key role in the tight control that we see. So knowing that we can then ask a very simple question. Why do people with diabetes have lower vitamin C? Do they have lower vitamin C values for real? And could that be because of abnormal handling by the kidney? In other words, there's a hole in the kidney, a kidney leak, a renal leak. And that's, what, that's why this paper, it's one of the reasons this paper happened. There's another reason I'd, I'd also like to talk about. It's not so much in this paper, but it certainly is a driver in terms of our interest in diabetes. And it, it, it's in the background of this paper, and it's part of our, very big part of our current and future work. That that um, that background is that it is really chemistry. So vitamin C or ascorbic acid, um, when it's oxidized, its first stable product is dehydroascorbic acid. Dehydroascorbic acid has multiple forms, but one of the forms, and it's probably the dominant form in vivo, although no one really knows, that form structurally looks just like glucose. So there's a very simple question that has taken many years to answer. But that question is what's important? Is ascorbic acid important? Dehydroascorbic acid important Are both important? I, I didn't say about my background, but part of my background is I'm an endocrinologist. And that endocrinology background is really helpful in thinking about this relationship. Why? Because in endocrinology, we deal with many other hormones um, that act or have a very similar, if you will, backbone of, of two materials with the question of which one is more active. So the one of them that's really nice to think about is thyroid hormone. So thyroid hormone in the blood is, is tetraiodothyronine. That's 99 plus percent of what we measure. The Less than 1% is triiodothyronine. But in fact, the only active stuff is the tri-form, the T3 triiodothyronine. That's the only thing that works in the nucleus. The, the, the tetraform, T4, has to be deiodinated or it doesn't work for vitamin D which as an endocrinologist we consider a hormone is that the active form is 125 dihydroxy cholecalciferol but in fact what's in the blood is a hundred or more fold higher which is the 25 hydroxy D that's what people buy in health food stores it's it's what we recommend to patients it's cheap the, the paradigm there is it is to me as an endocrinologist, is, is very it's very obvious about how to think about dehydroascorbic acid versus ascorbic acid and glucose. So to summarize a very long and involved story, which is not in this paper, but is referenced, is that the active form of dehydroascorbic acid, or, or I'm not the active form, rather, but the, the dehydroascorbic acid form is the only way that red blood cells get their vitamin C. That came from thinking about glucose and the hydroascorbic acid, structural similarities. Once knowing that um, we could also ask, is there some phenotype in a red cell with a low vitamin C concentration? There is the red cells become more rigid. So that, opens up the second reason that lurks in the background for, for our group to heavily think about vitamin C um, and diabetes. It's And it comes down to a simple issue. Does that glucose that's in excess in diabetes have consequences for dehydroascorbic acid movement into red cells and then the function of, of ascorbic acid in the red cells. Dehydroascorbic acid goes into the red cell, immediately gets reduced back to ascorbic acid as soon as it enters. It's a trapping mechanism. So two independent pathways to think about uh, vitamin C and diabetes. This one was about, if you will, a of one of the mechanisms of control So our mantra, the background mantra um, for these studies is um, learn the physiology as thoroughly as possible at a molecular level, at a clinical level, all things in between. When that's clear, then the pathophysiology falls out. Here, it's, if you will, we know the kidney is important for vitamin C, control in healthy people could low levels be and diabetes be connected to some kind of dysfunction of that reabsorption system That's what this paper looks at and that seems to be true.
0: That was a wonderful background in uh, you know molecular regulation of vitamin status and uh, I think it just to summarize for folks I mean we got the, we have these consistent lowering of plasma vitamin C levels within diabetes relative to the non-diabetic state. And, you know, you could come up a priori, I guess, with hypotheses that's due to low intake or to some sort of other redistribution to other tissue compartments, or maybe that renal handling is different. And so that's what this paper really focuses on, is that is the plasma level low because you have renal wasting? And then with the dehydroscorbic acid, is it still correct that the glucose transporters are also transporting that? And there's like the theory was the competition between glucose and D, the, I always want to say DHA, but I work in omega 3 fatty acids, so I can't say that. So the dehydroscorbate, uh, are they still competing with each other to get into that red cell? Is that the model?
1: So I have to laugh. I was very careful not to say DHA because I didn't want to get to, um, too much stuck in in uh, in acronyms and and <laughs> confuse people you'll have people I've, heard, to...
0: I've heard that one before yeah. you'll have people running out buying omega 3 supplements to, to for their diabetes yes. to...
1: <laughs> but the the idea was initially that that's that that idea that there could be competition it was a very simple idea mm-hmm. now Human biology—it's complicated. Yeah. That may or may not be true in the red cell, and I—if I, the answer is at the moment—that's something that we are actively investigating.
0: I imagine you need isotope tracers to start to really get at that question to look at flux in and out of the red cell with, and, and whether there's true competition occurring.
1: So, the, the simple answer is. You can do it with dehydroascorbic acid and ascorbic acid. But this this really comes to, the best way would be, as you said, flux with heavy-labeled materials, stabilized toast. But th- this comes to, to something that I think is also worth mentioning in a very big way here. It's um, kind of the devil is in the details For most scientists, that's really the deal, that those details really matter. And I'm glad you brought up the idea of how we measure or quantitate. That's been a huge problem in ascorbic acid work, especially when I started. I'll, I'll tell you a little vignette, maybe your audience would be interested. So When I joined NIH, my plan was to really do these kinds of nutritional studies. I had done intense clinical training as I had found a mentor who told me to do that. But I was not interested, if you will, in fixing problems. I wanted to prevent the problems. And a lot of medicine then and now is fixing problems. Um, I had been, shall we say, (laughs) strongly advised by um, that mentor that I had to do endocrinology. So I was a new endocrine fellow on the wards at the National Institutes of Health. And um, we were, I was my, I don't know, first or second day rounding with some of the time, some of the real greats in endocrinology. Uh, some of them were at NIH. Um, One of them saw me and came up to me. I was a new face on the team. And he said, son, he said, son, son, what are you doing in science? And I told him I was trying to learn about physiology and pharmacokinetics of vitamin C. And he goes, do you have a good measurement technique? And I said, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I'm actually working on that right now because the measurement techniques are not good. And he said, "That's wonderful because if you have a good measurement technique, the world is your oyster. And if you don't, it's garbage in and garbage out." <laughs> I, I, that was that was one of my little interactions with that guy. But he was absolutely right. Um, measurement of vitamin C has been extremely problematic. And it's because it's not stable. And the other techniques that have been used prior to HPLC had difficulties, many difficulties with sensitivity, specificity especially was was a real problem, and and stability. So um, I worked at the bench for a couple of years developing um, an HPLC assay with a flow-through electrochemical detection. And that is worth it because we know what we have. It's, in fact, a technique with a few modifications that we used in this paper. But measurement really matters. You could even ask, is this idea of the kidney being important in vitamin C control in people. It's not a new idea. People have thought about this really since the 1940s. And the problem has been always that problem of measurement. What was really there? What was really being measured? I, I, one of the, one of my, um, when I, when I talk about this with students or newcomers to the group, one of the things I like to, to reference are some of the old dietary studies um, that were uh, done at the University of Iowa. And the their findings, uh, I, don't, I don't think we need to go into their findings here, but the, the, the reality is, is that they had people with severe vitamin C deficiency that they documented clinically yet they had measurable plasma concentrations. And the senior author wrote an editorial in no, no, none other place than AJCN <laughs> back in 71 or 73, saying, gee, how could this be that we're measuring vitamin C and yet these, these, these subjects have such severe deficiency? The, the answer was an assay problem. It's interference. So the measurement really, really matters. I'm sorry for that kind of long-winded
0: no, discussion there.
1: but
0: it's an important topic, and I, I'm teaching a biochemical nutrition lab class now and uh, impressing upon students that the assay is everything and your controls and you know specificity, sensitivity, et cetera. Uh, it seems boring, and it's hard to teach in a way that's interesting, but I think uh, that example you gave was a really good one. And uh, fields can be definitely led astray uh, with uh, bad assays. You don't have to wander too far into Western blotting and antibodies to figure out how wrong we can go. And then nutrition, I think a lot of the kits that we rely on with proprietary chemistries and whatnot can be even more problematic for folks because you don't even know what you're measuring. So, But that's a whole tangent we could go down for, I'm sure.
1: sure. I, I, I share that. And I will tell you, you know, I have trainees in my lab. And one of the things I will... Because I, I remember before there were kits, we, w- we would do these things ourselves. And the kits, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes if you will, squelch thinking about what they really mean and what's really being measured. I, I, I want to say just a couple more things about measurement. So the first electrochemical measurement of vitamin C was really in advance by, uh, uh, by Packler and Kissinger, And I think it was in the 1976 or 79 and and the principle was very simple. It's that ascorbic acid will donate electrons. If a voltage is applied, current could be measured from those electrons coming off. And so it's a really neat principle. It's the same principle that we we use today. It's a different detection system, but it's the same principle. At the end of their paper, which was very technical about this device that they invented work, they invented the amperometric detector. Hmm. There was a little ditty. Is vitamin C there like we say, or has it oxidized away? And... (laughs) probably still true to today right (laughs) it's if people don't think about it yes it's something that that you you know you don't a reader is not going to see when they read our paper but it's something we think about really carefully i I think something else i'd like to say and it's especially you know to to the credit of uh, uh ife he his 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 full first name is Ife Chakude, but he says no one can pronounce it. So he goes by Ife and Pierre, the, the first two authors. They were very sensitive to these um, issues of measurement. They, they, really, they really matter. Um, so the other thing I'd like to say about measurement is that when one thinks about dehydroascorbic acid, it's still a problem. You know, how do we measure dehydroascorbic acid distinctly in a distinctly different way, a separate technique than ascorbic acid? As something, you know, the the one of the benefits of the intramural research program that I'm part of is that I can take these, if you will, very high intellectually risky topics and have a long range view of them. It's something we've been working on. Oh my gosh, for more than 25 years. We're very close. Nice. We're very close. And when we have that technique out there, I think it will be extremely useful to answering what you asked me earlier, Kevin, about um, about flux and, and about stable isotopes. So there's one other thing I kind of like to say. I I just I have to do this because this path has been a, um, you know, I I, I could not have done this work. I could not have had a group, you know, uh, supporting the work and then taking it on their own without this, if you will, protection of a long range view. So I cannot emphasize enough that 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 is part of the intramural research program. Why didn't, you know, you could ask why if I did these studies, because back in the day, I, I really did them. I, I admitted these patients. I wrote the protocol. It was pretty simple back then. <laughs> Not now. Um, why did it take us till now to publish these data? And I, I want to say why. Um, what happened in learning about these control mechanisms for ascorbic acid, is that we had a kind of, it was sort of an accidental discovery. For me as a physician, it was a no-brainer. But for others, it wasn't. And that accidental discovery came from learning about bioavailability, So in these studies that we did, we did true bioavailability. We had people at steady state or equilibrium for a dose. And at that dose, we gave them the dose that they were on. And I gave it to them orally. And then I put an IV in and gave an intravenous line and gave it to them intravenously myself. And what happened as the doses went higher, we could produce concentrations that were simply impossible from oral dosing. Okay. You know, that's no surprise. It's it's the same principle that, that physicians use as to why you have a patient who has a bad infection. You admit them to the hospital to give them IV antibiotics, intravenous antibiotics, because you get higher concentrations. It's okay. <laughs> why would that matter for ascorbic acid? Could it matter? And I'm old enough to remember the forays into cancer um, by Ewan Cameron and Linus Pauling, and what was not recognized then was that intravenous and oral could make a huge difference in what patients had. This idea that intravenous ascorbic acid could produce pharmacologic concentrations for me as a physician was, you know, duh. but. It wasn't that for others. What this meant was, you know, to, to, to bring this back to your listeners, could ascorbic acid as a drug have potential utility in cancer treatment? I, I felt very strongly that I had an ethical um, obligation to pursue that work. That's why the renal threshold studies and diabetes were put aside those the clinical protocol to study those patients with diabetes was was around for a while but i didn't use it because i felt that i i had to go down that road um, and now we we don't do that work anymore but we've we've set groundwork and people are doing clinical trials now with using ascorbic acid as a drug just like you would use any other cancer drug the 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 idea simply to add this to other treatment standards why the renal threshold work was delayed was for that reason I, I will tell you and it's and if there are young people you know younger scientists rather, listening, um, I felt very, very strongly about doing this because it was not that I'm a believer. It's rather that I thought the science was so important to address and that no one else would do it if I didn't do it. I will say that some of my, you know, I had a couple of supportive older colleagues, in particular, Bruce Ames, who I'd like to mention here. Um, And Bruce warned me that people would make fun of me and worse. He was right. They did. Um, But he said, stick with it. And I did. So, and we did. So the, the, you know, now this, now people don't laugh anymore. Um, And the message for younger people, younger scientists, I I think is important is that if, if you see something that you think is worth doing, follow, follow your innards. You know, many people
0: told me. Get a job with the intramural program that's protected.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's right. And I know it's a real problem for others. It's worse now because, you know, when I started funding was not the nightmare that it is now.
0: Yeah. That's a good, maybe um, like in line to this, this, the intramural program is really what allowed you to do this, the uh, depletion repletion studies that we, that you cover in this paper to really assess the renal leak in diabetes. Um, And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the depletion repletion design and how that facilitates some of these pharmacokinetic analyses and really looks at, uh, look at these compartments and renal leak.
1: So the design of this study using depletion repletion is a is an old classical design in nutritional science. Um, For some nutrients, you can't do this. Um, And I think now, you know, just to say this with I think stable isotopes offer a much easier way, a more practical way of doing these kinds of work especially for nutrients that you can't deplete and even for those that you can stable isotopes offer lots of advantages about learning about metabolism if oral and intravenous preparations are used and we have done that kind of work for alpha tocopherol um, in collaboration with others with marette Traber in particular at oregon state but in terms of coming back to the depletion-repletion design, ascorbic acid is one of those vitamins that it's possible to deplete. And that was the design. It was to, in a very simple way, it's take it away and then give it back in very graded doses. Taking it away <clears throat> was was done um, by we developed a diet in the, uh, in, in, in nutrition at NIH helped us to, in fact, did develop this diet. The idea was to make something palatable for subjects, um, where that would still deplete them of vitamin C. And, uh, that's what we used. This was an, a very demanding study for the participants. And and they are, in my view, heroes and heroines who participated. That's because this study involved a five- to seven-month inpatient hospitalization. I was their doctor. I screened them all. I took care of them all. When they were admitted, they began this diet, and they stayed on it the whole time. It was a neat diet because every day there were different menu choices for 14 days, and then it recycled. And we knew exactly what they ate. We used the metabolic kitchen that you may be familiar with. It was still there, it yep. was there then. Um, and when they, you know, the hardest part of this was deciding at what point is how low to go. And that we did by measuring and clinical symptoms. I didn't want anybody to get Frank scurvy. So um, a lot of my gray hair that podcast members can't see, but you can. Uh, came from trying to figure out what was the right place to stop. And we stopped somewhere between five and 10 micromolar. Stopping meant that we did the first of seven different bioavailability studies. And we then did graded studies. Subjects would be on that dose until they hit steady state. And then the dose would advance. So the, the dose was given as a drug. I didn't want capsules or foods to interfere. I wanted pure vitamin C. That's what we used. And it was given both intravenously and oral for these bioavailability studies at steady state. The definition of steady state was a rigorous one. It was that each subject um, had to have at least five plasma measurements over a period of a week that had less than 10% standard deviation. That defined the steady state. When they were at steady state, we did pharmacokinetic studies, which were 36 hours uh, continuous sampling, basically. Uh, first an oral dose uh, and then an intravenous dose. Um, that was those doses were done over different subjects had different doses some didn't get all seven, but all of them went through the first five. And the, the goal was to have a, a, as big a fold variation of ascorbic acid as possible. And we also collected everything that I could think of to collect, including urine. And that's, that's what was used in these studies. So uh, this design, um, you know, now, this would be hard to
0: do Yes, it was. (laughs) uh,
1: Well, first of all, it'd be hard to repeat. Period, and it's. I'd like to say this. um, I'm sure most of the people listening don't know me personally, and you don't know me personally. But but I'm a a pretty rigorous guy, and my feeling about doing these studies, in fact, was that nobody was going to repeat them. They're too hard. And that put, well, that put one special obligation on us and on me. The other obligation was the subjects themselves. And in doing this kind of research with, with healthy people, there's an extra obligation. These people are healthy. They're giving of themselves so that we learn. I have, the, I really see it as my highest duty as a physician to make sure I do right by them, so there were many, many demands on on this study. Um, I, I don't know that such a thing could be done again, and for that reason, there was a there was a burden on us to analyze things in the best way possible. And again, I have to call out Ife and Pierre because they got that, they get that, they got it and that rigor went into this paper. It may not show up in the title and even in the paper, but the the rigor had to be there because some of this is never, I I don't think it's going to be done again. In terms of going forward, you know, my, my feeling is the principle of physiology, pharmacogenetic studies for vitamins really have incredible promise. We learn what's normal. We learn the control mechanisms. We do that in healthy humans. And then that gives us, if you will, the power of knowledge to predict what the pathophysiology might be. That's what's happened here with ascorbic acid. And I I think that that same possibility is very real for alpha tocopherol and we've published about this it's certainly not the subject of this podcast, but it's about aberrant tacopherol tocopherol distribution in people with fatty liver disease it fell out of the data. It wasn't something we expected to do at all. It's the same principle. And you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to live long enough to see it happen. You will, I hope that these principles, of physiology pharmacokinetic studies are applied to every vitamin we can. What's the limitation? Limitations money. You talked about that earlier. Yeah. These reagents are very expensive for intravenous use. Oral use, the standards for stable isotopes, um, there are the standards, are, they're, they're certainly not loosey goosey, but it's very different when we put something intravenously into a, a person. That material must be of the highest quality that we can make.
0: It's like an intravenous drug, yep. same standard.
1: That's expensive, Kevin.
0: Oh, I know. I was looking at a, doing a B12 bioavailability study and with isotopically labeled B12 and, and doing it IV is just extremely prohibitively expensive. Even doing it orally is quite challenging. So I've, I've worked with stable isotopes a good bit during pregnancy and uh, it's, there's a lot of methods work that needs to be done to really even uh, test assumptions and things that are often in these PK models And uh, I think in addition to the money and the cost of the reagents, you're, you know, at the intramural center, you have the setup to do good human physiology work. And we used to have the relatively well-funded GCRCs that are, you know, I think they've been replaced with CTSAs and are not nearly as well-funded. And uh, paying $500 for one blood draw for (laughs) five minutes of time is just Prohibitively expensive for researchers now, but uh, it's it's amazing that the NIH still has this strong intramural research program where these studies can be done, and hopefully there's more investment in the ability to do these kind of domiciled feeding trials
1: I'm hopeful that that's that's going to happen you know i I, I certainly have done my best you know I, I, I focus my energies on science, I try my hardest to stay away from. Science, politics, you know, the way that I look at things is I provide data to the best of my ability and then I can, and my group does that. And we let others interpret it. I, I know at NIH there's been a very positive change about nutrition. Um, that the, there is now a division. Of nutrition, I don't know its proper title actually, but it's now under the office of the director that there's trans. Um, it, it's a, the, the interest is across institutes to try to coordinate nutritional interest, and I'm hoping that maybe you know I don't know, but I'm hoping that there's money that's going to follow from that. I won't see that money, but maybe people on the outside will which would be wonderful.
0: Yeah, I think we've seen the Food and Nutrition Board at the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine also get quite uh, more interested in these topics. And I was thinking about their recent report on special nutrient requirements in chronic disease states and how this work that you're doing in diabetes actually ties in really nicely with that to start to say, okay... You know, we, we often base uh, dietary reference intakes, you know, they're meant for generally healthy folks, but they're often used clinically for folks with disease. And the type of work you're doing really lays the foundation for, for doing uh, really well-informed clinical trials with uh, meaningful endpoints that uh, I think can help to reform the DRI process and DRI setting for individuals with disease.
1: I, I, I hope you're right, and thank you for that comment, the I I will tell you that, you know, there there were many, you know, this the study that we did was a single point in time study in people who were healthy controls and diabetic subjects. And there were the time of sampling was simply an hour. So the bottom line is, we don't know how much vitamin C is lost in people with diabetes over a day, we can't tell that from this study, but we are doing other studies
0: now to get at that. Wonderful. At that. Well, hopefully we will see those manuscripts coming through AJCN as well. And uh, maybe we can have you back on the pod to do an update of, of what is the quantitative you know, significance of this loss and, and how does it contribute to dietary requirements?
1: I'm a little embarrassed that I spoke for so long and didn't let you Oh, no. and some questions. So if, if there are other things you'd like me to talk about, please, please tell me.
0: Oh, yeah, no, it's no worries. Um, I think that, you know, folks can dive into the paper and really start to look at how exactly you defined renal leaks or the renal threshold and what the minimum elimination threshold was. And so, and the supplementary data, I think, has a ton of uh, information for those interested in more of the specifics of the modeling. But I think this was a good overview of the the purpose of the study and really about vitamin C handling in both health and disease. And, uh, you know, maybe after we tackle quantitatively what renal loss is, we can do some more bioavailability studies and look at intestinal absorption and kind of touched on that a little bit indirectly. Those things are
1: actually um, already, we are planning for those things right now. Actually, they're more than planned. So it's, you know, those are the things that we can do at NIH. Um, and as you said, um, work in, in in the old CRC and now the CTSAs are, are more difficult, but we still have the ability to do this kind of work um, at NIH. It's one of the beautiful things about the intramural program is that we can do this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to like this type of work too. As a as a you know still young career scientist and you know recent uh, trainee, it's it, having nutrients that sort of pilot this pharmacokinetic work really helps you grapple how to address it in slightly different nutrients. And so I know I've read a lot of the old folate work when folate was really sexy uh, to kind of help to better understand what we can do with choline pharmacokinetics and same with B12 and and how things might be different. And I think this vitamin C and some of the vitamin E work you mentioned is really setting the the groundwork for how we can apply this broadly to a lot of nutrients. And hopefully folks listening are uh, thinking about their favorite nutrient of interest and how we can better quantify the sort of absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion as you would uh, normally do for other pharmacokinetic studies.
1: I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you.
0: Great. Uh, any other shout outs you want to give? I know you, you, uh, shout out the authors, uh, the authors and, um, also the NIH intramural program and, and anything. Yes, else? there's a huge
1: shout out and that's for the, the subjects. We, we couldn't do this without subjects and the subjects come to participate because they want to help science. Um, the, healthy subjects who lived in the hospital, you know, they literally lived uh, in the old clinical center for five to seven months. Um, the subjects who participated in the renal leak su- uh, studies are outpatients, but there's still a lot of inconvenience for them to come back and forth, to be screened. And we couldn't do it without them. Just couldn't. So th- our subjects are the unsung Heroes and heroines. I want to make sure that they're not on solo.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, that's I think uh, as somebody who's done human research, I totally agree. Without the participants, and they are so willing of giving of their time and willing to make sure that the studies are done well, and uh, it's it's greatly appreciated by all the investigators.
1: I, I do want to say one more thing that um, I didn't I didn't want to get too much into the weeds about the red cell work. Um, But I would like to say this, and that is that, a lot of our red cell work with dehydroascorbic acid started with mice, but mice have different glucose transporters on their red cells and different numbers of them than humans.
0: Were you working with the full mice that can't synthesize it? So all
1: mice um, on their red cells um, have GLUT4. And humans have GLUT1. The affinity of dehydro for GLUT4 is less than for GLUT1, and much less. And additionally, the at least in the human red cell, uh, the GLUT, GLUT1, to my knowledge, is the most abundant membrane protein in the human red cell, is GLUT1. So... The message is that there is a balance between doing animal studies and human studies. But in the end, when if I as a physician scientist have the option and privilege to be able to do human studies, that's what I'm going to do. Even though they're harder, they're much harder. But in my view, they're worth it.
0: Mice, uh, I, I work with mouse models and, you know, they are a great complement for doing some translational studies, but there's always that caveat. And uh, I guess for, for folks, we didn't say that there's, you know, the sodium dependent vitamin C transporters or SVCTs, but then red blood cells lack the SVCT, So they have the glucose transporters that can bring in the dehydroascorbate, And so that's a, a way for red blood cells to take up vitamin C and the mouse physiology and the human physiology here, I guess, lacks some, uh, a direct translational component, but it's a big question.
1: You got that right. And just in terms of, you know, how, again, unders- I, I, I understand the purpose of this podcast is to talk about the paper in AJCN, but just as an aside, that red cell work was really extraordinarily difficult because of measuring vitamin C in a red cell. We had to develop that technology too that took a couple of years. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense that it would be difficult. It's because red cells loaded with hemoglobin, tons of iron, beautiful oxidant for ascorbic acid. <laughs> How do you do it?
0: Yeah, it, it, I, I um, admire folks who work in redox biology because yeah, I, working in choline where there's nice partitioning and working in fatty acids where there's I mean, apart from a little bit of oxidation and drying under nitrogen, you don't have quite as many problems as you get with these, you know, uh, you have all those reactions between, I've I've done a little bit of work in NAD and NADH measurement via LCMS, And you have to do yeoman's work to try and make sure that you're (laughs) separating the endogenous NAD from NADH and then the spontaneous formation of NADH in the column and everything. And I, I can imagine all of these same issues come up with vitamin C and Uh, It's just a technological leap that you really have to spend a huge amount of time overcoming.
1: You got that right.
0: (laughs) So that's a buyer beware for any PhD students that are looking to do some of this work. Uh, Method development in your PhD can suck up a huge amount of time. And, uh, you know, not that you should avoid a project for that reason, but know what you're going into. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think that is a wonderful overview of vitamin C history and some of the work that you all are doing with vitamin C pharmacokinetics and, and healthy. Let pod- me just add that
1: if um if somebody wants to look at that editorial, um about that I mentioned about how could our subjects have, how could our subjects have frank scurvy and we still measure vitamin C? That was in AJCN and it was Robert Hodges, who wrote it.
0: Oh, great. I'll put that in the show notes and make sure that folks can click that link. And uh, we'll make sure any other literature that we've talked about gets in the show notes as well, in addition to the the main manuscript that we've covered here. Thank you again. Awesome. Yeah, it's wonderful. Thank you.